honored to come here. I, it's very rare that I do get to um, share the word with um, what my home church here at Renew. And so, um, yeah, I'm glad for and honored. Um, Wilson did make sure that he said, hey, make sure you open up with a question. But I was going to do that anyways because I, I just, you know, I just like to make you guys uncomfortable, but not me. Um, David, can, <laughs> can you go to the next slide, David? So um, this is a pretty deep question, and I always go deep, if you know that about me. Now, so the question is, when was a time you faced an event of your life of such magnitude that it felt like it would consume the entirety of your very existence and that there would be no end or hope for a future? Now, please find a neighbor or someone next to you and open up your hearts and share... (laughs) I'll give you some moment. Now, granted, some of you, you may already know, especially if you have experienced something like this, you would know it comes to mind. Others, you're afraid <laughs> of an event like this that would enter your, your life. But in either case, take this time to share. And if you don't want to share, just get to know your neighbor. And I'll, I'll get to, since we're all going to get into the boat together. So why don't you take that time right now? I um I wanna um, I wanna make sure that um, I could frame this well, kind of going into our passage today. There, there's a, a term that w- maybe you guys heard it um, recently, or in maybe in event, events in news or whatnot, and it's a term called the perfect storm. And I always found um, the word perfect and storm to kind of be strange, but the where it comes from is an actual an actual storm, and that was the name of it. They they you know like normally on the East Coast when storms hurricanes occur, they they name them they name them a name, but this storm they just named the perfect storm. And there was a movie back in two thousand when we were all very you know younger, because <laughs> I guess that was eighteen years ago. Wow. So there was a uh, there was a movie called The Perfect Storm based on a book based on an actual event. So it was, um, and the, the idea of why they call it the perfect storm is that it's referring to an instance where two separate tropical storm, storms first merged into one and then was later followed by a hurricane. So it was essentially, yeah, it's like this doesn't happen normally, but it's like the right events or the perfect events create a horrible disaster. And so the, the premise of the, that book and that movie was about a group of fishermen who were, who were out, you know, working, fishing, and they, um, they were faced with this storm. They, they actually were caught in this storm. But a lot of times that's what, if you would hear on the news or if you, you know, hear someone refer to it, when they talk about the perfect storm, it's a disaster. It's a bad thing. But because certain things just occurred, that's like one right after the other after the other. Like, if anything and everything could go wrong, went wrong, essentially. So, um, with that in mind, this idea of the perfect storm, there are, when I think about people, like the way that God created us as humans, we're blessed that God created humans to be very resilient and adapt, uh, adaptable. Uh, for those nerdy folks um, and people who like art, uh, role-playing games or RPGs, when, when it has, or, or who are into like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that, when, when they talk about humans, humans are like 
vanilla, bland. Because, like, every other, like, character or race, like elves and dwarves, like, they have a very unique trait that, that, that makes them that way. But when you look at humans, they're just, like, normal. But th- there's a caveat to that, because the humans, or to be a human, which we all are, last I checked, is there's a sense that our trait is resilience and adaptability. We can go either way, good or bad, strong or weak, depends on the situation. We can stretch. And so when I think about these times or these perfect storms, these moments, especially when you, when you think about a question like that, and the reason why it's so dramatic or so dumpy is that it's not, because it's not just a hardship, but it is the hardship or the moment that the temptation is it, it would consume, you feel like it would consume your very existence. It, it's like your life is that storm or is the storm. There is nothing beyond that. And you can imagine, too, being caught, if, if you ever were or if you see movies and stuff, the idea is that when you're in the storm, you can't see anything but the storm. Everywhere you're looking, you're caught in it, you're lost. And so, to lighten it up, I think about the movie Trolls. Yeah. In my sermon prep, that is the best example that I could come across. Because in that movie, there are two main characters. One is called Poppy. And she's, and, and so for me, I think about people and how, what camp they're in, especially in moments of crisis or disaster. And so you have the Poppy character where she's a strong leader. She's very optimistic. Uh, and her weakness is sort of na- naivety. Did I say that right? Yeah, naivety, meaning that her optimism helps compel and move her, but yet it doesn't count fully the cost or the the dangers or the you know the the bad things that can occur. And then opposite to her is another character called Branch, and he's a gray troll, and he is dumpy, you know. And like I just I I feel him when I when I see him. It's like oh. And the, the fact is, is like, his, his character, and it, I, I don't know, are you guys, can I ruin that part of the movie? Or is someone like, no, I'm going to go watch this movie. Don't tell me anything that will ruin it. Okay, well, he, he, he's a character, I would say, that is defined by a tragic event in his life. And that's why he's gray. So that, I'll ruin that part of the movie. Is that he, That's not his normal color. So he's gray, Okay. So this is me catching bits of the movie because my kids have watched it and I've seen parts of it. So maybe I know what I'm talking about. Maybe I don't. But, uh, <laughs> so I, I, but the thing about his character is he's very pessimistic, the, his outlook in life. But he's so prepared. Almost, he's almost paranoid, paranoid, paranoid in his preparation in life, meaning that if something's going to go bad, it will go bad. And that's why I have a bunker, you know, and everything else. And, and, and the, the context of the movie is that there, there's these other um, people called Bergens. And to me, the way I look at it, it's kind of like the world. And so the Bergens are like, they're just sad and mean and depressed. And they eat the trolls one day out of the year, which is like their Christmas. Because when they eat the troll, that is a fleeting moment when they eat that troll that they feel happy. You know? <laughs> so that's the basis of the movie. So... <laughs> And the thing is, why I bring it up is because those, the way I see it is there are those two camps of people, like Poppy and Branch, and everyone just kind of falls within the spectrum of one of those two. And I think, like, that's, it's, in many ways, it's like people kind of cope 
with a storm or the perfect storm in the life around that spectrum, and it can go that way. And having that in mind, I want to give a little background now into where we're at in our message, into the sermon, in our series. So we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Wilson, last week, he was able to share about the cost of discipleship, following what it takes to follow Jesus. And in there, one, uh, there were two, uh, what I would say, like, uh, bad examples or negative examples of how not to follow Jesus. But in the passage from last week, there was this one part, verse 18, which is kind of the beginning of the passage. Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. So Jesus already kind of gave a command to his disciples. He oftentimes, because he, he just finished his Sermon on the Mount, which at that time, it just blew people's mind. Because the Sermon on the Mount essentially turned upside down what people's expectation of who God accepted for his kingdom, who God would accept. And so, you know, um, in, in, at the time with the Jews, there's this sense that those who were broken, those who were poor, those who were the fringes of society, they're the, out, they're the outcasts or the outgroup. But those who are holy, those who are rich, those who are religious, they're in the in-group. And so what Jesus is showing, no, you got that wrong. And so the Sermon on the Mount really breaks that down. Some of the things that what we would say makes a person righteous and acceptable to God, he kind of flips it, and it all comes. And he's, he's framing now his, his message, the gospel, what we believe. He's framing it now in the way that God sees it. In many ways, those who are broken, those who are lost, those who are on the fringes are actually right at the door ready to enter, and they're acceptable. They are the standard in which God loves us. And I think the recognition then, and what was so hard about the religious teachers and the people at that time, is they didn't associate themselves like that. They said, we were already in, and Jesus is like, no, no, no. Actually, those who you look down upon or you have casted out are actually closer to the kingdom than you are because they recognize their brokenness and their need for a savior. He is blowing people's minds. And not only is he teaching with authority and bringing a message that the people felt was new, but Jesus was just telling them this is how God has shown itself through him. The message he spoke, and he validated it now with many, healing, many miracles of healing. So he's, very, he's at a point, pretty much the beginning of his ministry, where he's popular. He's new, new teaching to the people, and he's, he's healing people. People have not seen this before. And so there's a crowd, and that's why um, with this idea, people are coming to Jesus. Rabbi, can I follow you? What does it take to follow you? And, of course, you know, uh, Wilson, he went into that. But because of this crowd, Jesus ordered his disciples to get into the boat and cross over to the other side. And that brings us to our, our, um, our point today. So we've seen from last week two examples of how not to follow Jesus. Today we'll see how we should follow him, even if it would cost us our lives or what we would feel are our lives. The question that I want to bring up and address is twofold. What should we believe when we are faced with these storms in our lives? These storms of such magnitude is not just a hardship. It's not just suffering, but it is um, earth-shattering or what you would say like what a hurricane is, nothing man-made, even of all the nuclear weapons, can sustain the force and the power that a hurricane has for the time that it, it rages. 
something that can, in, in, in an instance or at, at a magnitude that feels that it could erase our existence. So it's not something lightly. What should we believe when we are faced with a storm like that? What should we do as we follow Jesus and are hit with these significant moments in our lives? When we are following Christ, we are sometimes led into some unexpected and devastating storms in our life. The cost of following Jesus can lead us into what feels like the perfect storm, where everything that could go wrong goes wrong. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 8, and we'll read verses 23 through 25. Um, And it's here on the slides. We could um, pick up from where our passage starts. Then he who is Jesus got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. The Sea of Galilee, which is the body of water that Jesus commanded his disciples to cross over, there, there's, uh, it was subject to storms due to its geography. And um, stay with me, because <laughs> it, it's important. The idea of where the Sea of Galilee was in the land of Palestine, which is uh, uh, Israel-Palestine today, there's a body of water called the Sea of Galilee, which is below sea level significantly. On its west side is the Mediterranean Sea, which is, of course, the large body of water um, where Italy and stuff is. And then um, on the east side are the, plat- the desert plateaus. So if you can imagine how a tornado starts where hot and cold air kind of mix and it creates a, a, a downdraft of funnel. The Sea of Galilee is below sea level, so you can imagine that the cool air from the Mediterranean Sea on the west side and the hot desert winds from the east side, from the desert plateaus, they mix, and it creates a violent downdraft right up on the Sea of Galilee. So that's the geography of that. So this storm that we're reading, it, it, the text clarified, it's a furious storm. And you can imagine the disciples, it, we, we could kind of infer from the text that it's most likely the twelve. Uh, the 12 that were closest to Jesus, the one that he personally taught. And the boat, the fishing boat, it's not like the, the fishing boat maybe that you see if you watch the fishing channel. I don't know. Do any of you guys have Where it's like one guy on a, a casting line. These are, these are like enterprise boats um, where they could fit up to 12 plus people, 14, 16. Out of that, about four row one steers in the, in the, in the rear, the, after the, the boat, and then the remaining crew are the ones who are casting the net. And so at this time, it's most likely towards the, the evening time or towards the end of the day because Jesus has been preaching all day long and prior to the examples of the disciples, or, uh, two of the disciples that wanted to follow him, um, before that he said, let's cross over to the other side. So you can imagine that these, at least four of them, which we know were uh, Andrew, Peter, James and John, um, Andrew and Peter were brothers, James and John were brothers. When Jesus called them out earlier in the Gospel of Mark, they were fishing, and he called them out. And so their livelihood were fishermen. And where they were experienced or where they fished was the Sea of Galilee. So if anything, they, they would know that these storms occur. And whether and this is the thing that obviously reading or researching, I don't know if they knew, like maybe they looked at the, the, the sky or the times, or they would know like uh, there's a storm possibly coming. The text doesn't make that clear. 
But the fact is that Jesus said, hey, let's cross over to the other side. So whether they saw it, that, or didn't, because it's like, dude, you know, th- we know this body of water. It takes about two hours to cross by boat. So they knew it. They got it in hand. They got in the boat. And, of course, they were faced with this storm. Now, if you can imagine, especially with us, we, most of us know how to live our lives. I think that's a good way to put it. Most of us know what we need to do to, to live or to survive. If you can imagine, maybe your mom or dad, your brother or sister, your spouse, there's people that you look at who are markers of stability, maybe. So if you see them, maybe you're in a team setting or you've done, I don't know, mud runs. I don't know, something where you did together. If you see this person panicking, they're like your measure of like, are we okay or are we going to die? And there's this measure. Okay, so on Fortnite, maybe there's someone who's like really good. He's like, hey, if we stick around this guy, we might win. Yeah, he, he'll kill everyone. And we, we, we'll just like, we'll coast. We'll, we'll, we'll contribute one or two, right? So, see, I, I, I could stay in, that, in the game. Um, um, but um, so the fact is, is that at least four of them, they knew it. They got, this, they got it down pat. They know what to do. Crossover boat, it's nothing. And even if there was maybe a storm, they're like, oh, it's sketchy. But Jesus, yeah, I think we can do it. We can get over it. You know, and especially fishermen, they fished at night, too. So it's not like uh, something totally foreign or, or um, un- unexpected for them to be able to cross over at nighttime. This was their livelihood. But these four, if you can imagine, I would assume perhaps these four fishermen were the ones who were rowing. But this isn't just a storm. This isn't just something. Because you can imagine, they had the respect. They have the deference to Jesus. Like, hey, you know what? It, it's, the winds are like crazy, but let's just, let's just try to power through it. Let's try to get through this. That's the only thing we can do. But they reach a point where you can imagine the other eight see the four who are experienced, and those four are panicking, and now all, like, all hell breaks loose. Because, like, dude, if they're afraid we're going to drown or we're going to capsize, the waves are of an extent that it's going to swamp the boat. You could imagine the four are trying to row, the eight are, uh, other eight are trying to pull water out of the boat um, faster than the water is coming in. They reach a point where, like, we're going to die. And, like, everyone's panicking. So they, they, and they look, and Jesus is asleep in the back, you know. It, it's, it's funny. That's the sentence in, uh, towards the end of um, verse 24. But Jesus was sleeping. You can imagine two hours Jesus was in his human body, or he, he had his human nature at that time, and, and um, he was tired. He's preaching all day. We know from the text that he wakes up early in the morning to pray, to come to the Father, um, and he was teaching, preaching all day long. He was probably trying to catch about two hours of sleep to the other side, and so this storm is raging, a life-threatening, furious storm. The boat is up and down, and like they say, like, what, 15 feet waves in a lake, which is pretty large. Um, could swamp it, and he's asleep. And so the disciples, at their, at their end of their life, were going to die. They wake him up, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. You know, um, we see here the type of followers that Jesus has in these disciples, at least initially. We're blessed, actually, that many of us who believe in Jesus and follow him, we, we, could, we, we see it from the other side. And so you can imagine his disciples, they knew Jesus was special. He was a rabbi, possibly the Messiah, the one who will save his people. His disciples knew he was unique. He taught in a way that the other teachers of the law and the scribes did not. He healed 
people, Peter, his, his mom, uh, Peter's mom had a fever that Jesus uh, healed her, and she immediately began to cook and wait on them. And so they knew he was unique, but even their discipleship, they, they followed him to, into the boat and into this storm, but they didn't know exactly who it was they were following. We see that it happens. It's kind of the world that we live in. Um, those two camps, one is like there's denial, like, no, I got this. The world will work according to my optimism and my strong leadership, and we will forge through not seeing all the spiders and pitfalls and dangers out there. And then there's the other people who's like, no, this world is scary, and it will consume me if I stick one toe out the door. And we can fall within that spectrum. And in many ways, it's like we have the blessing to live in a country where we are cushioned. We're well cushioned. But even in this country, it's, I, I tell people when you see the news, when you see the politics and stuff, you cannot legislate sin and, and fallen and brokenness. So it, it's sad to say we live in a world, even in this country, where we say so blessed, uh, a lot of good things going for it. If you're a certain race, then yes, you're disadvantaged. It can appear that way, but then the system is broken. If you're a certain gender, you will not be treated fairly. It's, it's a reality that as, as cushioned and as blessed as we are, the fact is, is that this world that we live in is fallen. It's not heaven. And for many of us who are believers, that, that we know that what we can say with hope is that this world is not all that we have. But it's not to say that we are not in the world that we will not be faced by the consequences of being alive here and now. That as much as we as humans, adaptable, resilient, and uh, quirky, because I would say all of us are experts at um, avoiding, um, avoiding like hardships. It's like natural, it's wired. Who in their right mind would go into a storm? Who in their right mind would choose to do the hard way if they didn't have to? But yet, there are things, our boss above us, the company we work for, our spouse, our children, so many things we have no control over as much as we try to control it. And it becomes like uh, pain management for, for people who are like Branch, like me, and other people is just like pain avoidance. But the fact is, we're all human. And so the storms, we will face them, especially when we follow Jesus. Because unlike the messages that can maybe be prevalent in America particularly, is that maybe there's an assumption that Jesus who saves, Jesus who heals, that when I put my faith in him, all the pain will go away, or all the struggles will not matter. But I want to say that it's actually deeper and more than that because the pain will still remain and the struggle will still be there. But that will not define you and that will not be your end. We see here, continuing on, when we are faced with these storms, Jesus expects us to trust in him to get us through the storm. We are to let our faith in him, in Jesus, put our fears of this world into proper perspective. Let's read verses 26 through 27. 
He who is Jesus replied, You a little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. I, um, this is one of my favorite passages, actually, because of, like, I'm branch, right? So, but then I usually preach out of the Gospel of Mark, this, this same story. And I was telling my wife, she, she actually joked, she's all like, if there's anyone who's going to preach this passage, it's you. It's like, that's your passage, you know? And I, I didn't, I was like, is that a compliment or is that, like, just a reality, right? But I usually preach out of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and, and the reason is the, 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 the story is the same, but with every Gospel writer, the, the, where they put that story in their greater Gospel or their message, and some of the details that they choose to highlight or leave out, it does change perhaps the, the, the teaching that we as readers can draw from that. And so with Mark has a different slight bent of what we could take away from it. The emphasis is really the, uh, the disciples who got into the boat with Jesus, they didn't know exactly who it was that they were following. But here in Matthew, the emphasis is on following, but this aspect of faith over fear. And w- what we see here, it's hard because in both, in both passages, we see Jesus' reply, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And this is hard. This is hard because you can think like, these, you know, especially the four, the, the eight disciples, like, what? We were rowing for our lives. We were rowing and doing our best. We, 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 we could do it only to what we could. And that, that's kind of like Jesus' response to him. So it seems a little cold and uncaring. But I want to I clarify this because there's an understanding where Jesus says, little faith. And then he says, why are you so afraid? So let me, let me kind of expound this. Um, First off, it's not wrong that the disciples were afraid of the storm. Um, you would actually not be human if your life was about, if your life flashed before your eyes and you were in, gravely afraid of your well-being and you were not afraid. That's just, that's not normal. And if anything, God has built us with fear because fear, healthy fear, helps us like navigate life and not like making poor choices or like dying, you know, and like even babies, they don't, they don't have an extent of fear that can preserve their life. That's why parents have to fear for them, you know, because uh, a baby will, like, walk downstairs even though it doesn't know how to walk downstairs, and so it will roll downstairs. Um, so fear, like, it, it is, there's, there is a such thing as healthy fear because fear gives us a proper perspective or uh, kind of like a grid of like, okay, I should be cautious or I should walk slowly or I should learn how to navigate this without getting myself killed. But then there's a such thing as unhealthy fear where it, it's, it's, it's reasonable and expected, but if you can imagine your life is in danger, un- un- we see here what Jesus is kind of um, pointing at or getting down into. An el- unhealthy fear as a Christian is one where the fear clouds your faith. One where the fear overpowers what you know to be true or what you've accepted or desire to believe of Jesus, of what, who Jesus is and what he's, who he says he is and what he has done for us. An unhealthy fear means that that fear dictates your life. But we see here, so Jesus kind of points out the quality of their faith where their fear is 
overpowering their faith in who Jesus is. And granted, like from the disciples, we're so blessed, like I said, that we can see through them and through their real life experiences how how Jesus taught them and how we learn from that as well. And obviously, uh, I refer back because I would see that they're very similar passages is that Jesus... Um, he kind of showed us in his responses of like how not to follow him with those two, those two examples in last week's message. In this week's message, we see that the 12 disciples did follow him, but the quality of their faith was still lacking or was still little um, that they, they, they didn't have the right perspective when it was tested. And I, I can't emphasize that the, the storm is not just a little thing. It was a big thing, and it hurts. It can hurt so much. Like this storm, some people we see in going into um, verse twenty uh, towards the later part of verse twenty six. Jesus, it's it's interesting that he first corrects or addresses the issue with his disciples, and then he turns to address the storm. I could imagine if they're afraid that they're going to die, um, and it's unique too because in the Gospel of Mark, um, he has a, uh, recorded that Jesus calms the storm first, and then turns to his disciples and, and addresses their faith. But in the Gospel of Matthew, he has it the other way around, where Jesus addresses the disciples in the midst of this crazy, like, like they're afraid they're going to die, and he, Jesus turns to them, and he says this thing, and then he turns to the storm, and he rebukes it. Now, it, some commentaries, this is where they feel like storms, they happen, going back. They happen, like hardships occur, like crisis occurs, but as Christians especially, one, it could be just a natural event. You know, the Sea of Galilee was primed by its geography. But as Christians, we know not to put everything as just purposeless, like natural, just, you know, the way the world works. But then we also know not to put everything in, like, the devil made me do it, or, like, the devil's behind everything. But if anything, we put it balanced, meaning that it could be both. It could be a natural event that the devil is using to break you because we know that he desires to devour you, to end your life. That is the enemy that we have just for the fact that we say we are followers of Jesus, children of God, and, you know, children of the devil, as Jesus would say, you know. And so the idea is that you've crossed over into this, the camp of God, and because of that, you have an enemy. And the fact is... Even if it was a natural event, we see here that Jesus, he rebukes the, the winds and the waves. And rebuking is like correcting or putting into place, into proper place. So like if you're walking in the dark and you stub your toe on your bed and you yell out an explicative, um, you don't rebuke your bed for stubbing your toe on it. It just, it, it, it doesn't make sense. We see here that Jesus is kind of addressing an entity, and so a lot of commentaries, when they see this, they feel that there is a supernatural force also. Whether in this natural force, whether it was all natural or all supernatural, they do see an element, the possibility of, because at this time, like if you can imagine um, in the ancient Near East, the sea, the ocean, there was a, at least a reverence to the sea of its power, of what it can do, of like you being lost out at sea or capsized your ship you know there was a a, a reverence for that and especially to the jews only god was one who they saw as god of the storms god over the storms the one who can 
put waves and wind in place. But there, at, especially when the Jews first came to the promised land, was a, an idol or a god, a false god, they, who the people in the land at the time worshipped called Baal, which is loosely translated to the god of, god of storms. And so you can imagine this idol was a constant sore spot and struggle for the, the, the Jews at that time. But in the geography at that moment, on the west side was uh, Nazareth, and, and this is where the Jews lived. On the east side, on the other side of the lake, were where the Gentiles or non-Jews lived. And so there was this, and you, you'll see too, um, if they go into the next passages where Jesus uh, confronts two, de- two demon-possessed men. And so there's this idea that Jesus commanded his disciples to get into the boat to cross over to the other side because he had a mission. And so there's this idea that this storm is supernatural, that that Satan is using his abilities to control weather to kind of impede or to stop or to end their lives, to stop the ministry there. And, like, the disciples, they're just following Jesus, and they're caught in the middle of this, and they're like, you know, we, we, just, we were just going to cross over to the other side, and now, like, we were going to die, and we thought the ministry was going to end with us. But the fact is, is um, we can feel like that, too. And it's not trivial. And that's the thing, like, if you've experienced that in your life, and the idea is that it, it, it's a high possibility that you will, especially when you're following Jesus. Because sometimes, like even as John was mentioning, going into apartment life, sorry, not, don't be afraid to do that. But like when you feel called, especially for those who walk with God, who follow with him, he will call you. He will ask you to do things. That's, that's the supernatural element. People, it doesn't make sense. Why would you do missions? Why would you go there? Well, you know, why would you live your life that way? Because I feel called to do that. Why would you subject yourself to suffering? Because I, 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 I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to do that, but I just felt that God is asking me to do that. But then even natural things. As humans, once again, like we're so defined by, by uh, 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 bittersweet moments. And, and I refer, like, you know, um, as Wilson announced, um, Gabe and uh, Heather, they got married. And it's so nice, so beautiful, so romantic. And yet it's painful, too, because you, you, you will experience or you have experienced what it takes to get to that moment and what it will take after that moment to follow through on your vows and your commitment, to learn how to be committed, to your choice to commit to a person what it will take. To, to, to birth a child, to bring a child in, into the world, specifically for women, but then for the men who must suffer with their wife through that choice. So beautiful. Like, man, a, a child to be able to bring life into the world is just unheard of, but it's coupled with, with pain and suffering. How, it's like the paradox of being human. So it's unavoidable, like these moments that are so beautiful and yet so painful. And so that's why the storm is never trivial. At times, especially the ones that look and feel like they have no meaning. And some of the words in the, in the, in the questions that, that, that I brought out at the beginning for you to discuss is it's of such an intensity and magnitude that normally for you, whether you're a poppy or a branch, because whether you're a poppy, your life is just like, flashing before your eyes and you just realize that like man i was wrong and then whether your branch is like as much as you feel you can be prepared you realize this is it for you you're not going to survive beyond that it's like beyond your ability but what we know especially the promise the truth is that the disciples and us 
were in the safest place they could be because they were with Jesus. When we are in the midst of that, I believe that is what Jesus expects of us. That is why his response is, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? If you put in the context of, if they knew who Jesus was, if we know who Jesus is to us, we would realize regardless of the storm raging, regardless of the immensity of that storm that we feel will swallow us whole, that our life does not end there. And I'm not talking only figuratively for like eternity, but I mean here and now. We will not be defined by the darkness. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And it doesn't mean that you won't suffer. (laughs) Because you will. You cannot leave a storm unscathed. You'll carry those scars. You'll carry a portion of what, like what I would say is is a darkness or the the bittersweet moments. You'll carry that, but they won't define you. You'll actually be made stronger with it. And we know that promise through, through scriptures that our faith is refined through the fire. Because you can imagine, these, these 12 men, they had a perspective of Jesus, enough to believe and follow him into the storm. But they didn't know what it would take to get him through it until this storm occurred. And that's how it is with us and our faith as well. When we're faced with these storms of such immensity, we are revealed, Jesus reveals to his disciples, to us, the quality of our faith what we actually believe of him, what we believe who he is and what he can do. Does he care and is he capable? One, you can imagine, he was asleep. We feel at those times, especially the, the intensity that it, it just clouds our judgment, is like, God, are you even there? Are you asleep? That's the question, do you care? But then there's an aspect that, one, we know, yes, we know he cares. He died for us. He accepted us. He chose us. But then the question is, is then, are you capable? Like, not, I know you're capable. You created this world, you, you know, all this. But are you capable of ending my suffering? He is. And we saw that he's capable. But not to our standard. I would say that the realization is that he is capable to see us through the storm. Not to end the storm but to get us through it. The opportunity is that when you're in that storm, you get to experience it, and it will be bittersweet. Because one, it will hurt. But two, you will realize the blessing, that experience, your faith in him, all of that deepens, and it's refined. And you know, especially as as believers, that... To be able to see God more, to know him more, is a blessing that there's no riches, no power, no, no nothing that can compare because what we have with him, what we have with God, goes beyond this world. We take it with us into eternity, but everything else is left behind. Um, I want to close with um, this story um, about um, uh, next slide. Um, about Chaplain Emil Capon. Um, he was actually, President Obama, in, on April 11, 2013, uh, President Obama posthumously, um, meaning that he, he was already passed away, awarded him or gave him the Medal of Honor, which is the highest medal that you can get in the armed services. And, and he's a chaplain. He doesn't carry a weapon or anything. His, his sole purpose really is to minister to the troops. And, and um, 
re- recounting his life, um, President Obama, he shared these words. After the communist invasion in South Korea, Kapan was among the first American troops that hit the beaches and pushed their way north through hard mountains and bitter cold. That's when the Chinese forces entered the war with a massive surprise attack, perhaps 20,000 soldiers pouring down on a few thousand American troops. In the chaos, dodging bullets and explosions, Kapan raced between foxholes, foxholes out past the front lines and into no man's land, dragging the wounded back to safety. When his commanders ordered an evacuation, knowing that he would be overrun, uh, the commander knowing that their troops would be overrun, um, um, Capon chose to stay back. He gathered the injured, tended their wounds. When the enemy finally did break through and the combat was hand-to-hand, he carried on comforting the injured and, and the dying, offering some measure of peace as they did. When enemy forces bore down, it seemed like the end, that these wounded Americans, more than a dozen of them, would be gunned down. But Capon spotted a wounded Chinese officer, and he pleaded with this officer and convinced him to call out his fellow Chinese. The shooting stopped, and they negotiated safe surrender, saving those American lives. Then, as Capon was being led away, he saw another American, U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Herbert Miller, who was wounded, unable to walk, lying in a ditch, defenseless. An enemy soldier was standing over him, rifle aimed at that sergeant's head, ready to shoot, but Capon marched over and pushed the enemy soldier aside. And then, as the soldier watched, stunned, Capon carried that wounded American away. He carried the injured sergeant for miles as their captors forced them on a death march. When Capon grew tired, he helped the wounded Staff Sergeant Miller hop on one leg. When other prisoners stumbled, he picked them up. When they wanted to quit, knowing that stragglers would be shot, he begged them to keep walking. In the camps that winter, deep in the valley, men could freeze to death in their sleep. Capon offered them his own clothes. They starved on tiny rations of millet and corn and birdseed, but he somehow snuck past the guards, forged in nearby fields, and returned with rice and potatoes. In desperation, some men hoarded food. Kampan convinced them to share. Their bodies were ravaged by dysentery. He grabbed some rocks, pounded metal into pots, and boiled clean water for them. They lived in filth. He washed their clothes and cleansed their wounds. The guards ridiculed his devotion to his Savior and the Almighty. They took his clothes and made him stand in the freezing cold for hours, yet he never lost his faith. If anything, it only grew stronger, that faith that they might be delivered from evil, that they could make it home was perhaps the greatest gift to those men. Those, even amidst such hardship and despair, there could be hope. Amid their misery in the temporal, they could see those truths that are eternal, that even in such hell, they could be a touch of the divine. Looking back, one of the soldiers uh, that survived said that it, was, it is what kept them alive. Yet for Capon, the horrific conditions took their toll. Thin, frail, he began to limp with a blood clot in his leg, and then came the dysentery, then pneumonia. That's when the guards saw their chance to finally rid themselves of this priest and the hope he inspired. They came for him, and over the protests and tears of the men who loved him, the guards sent him to a death house, a hellhole with no food or water to be left to die. And then, as he was taken away, he did something remarkable. He blessed the guards. And he said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Two days later, in the house of death, Capon breathed his last breath. He was 35 years old. His body was taken away, his grave unmarked, his remains unrecovered to this day. The president said that this is the valor we honor, an American soldier who didn't fire a gun, but who wielded the mightiest weapon of all, a love for his brothers so pure that he was willing to die so that they might live. It's an extreme analogy or an extreme example, I would say. But the fact is, some of you who hear that is like, wow, that he had faith. But I'm telling you, we all have that faith. 
I would challenge if you could go back up one slide with, with this thought, especially as, um, as I close. Um, sorry, yeah. I would challenge that whether in a storm or not, that you would use this moment now with the message that we heard to commit to draw closer to Jesus and let him show you his care in the calm and his support through the storm. Because I would say that in the moments of calm, especially, we should draw close to him. That we would get to know him. That our faith would be deepened. We would know who our Savior is, the one who we committed our lives to. That when those storms come, not the, not the out this hurts, but the one that I feel my life is draining from my body, then that's when his support will come through. And his promise would be guaranteed. You experience it, and your faith would be, it would shine, even in the darkest moments as we see in the example of Father Capon. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your message, and I pray, Lord, that it would, it would sit with us because the fact, the reality is, is that we can never be fully prepared. We can never fully avoid the hardships, the storms that, that will come in our lives, especially when we are faithful to you, when we feel we're being obedient to you and following you. I pray, Lord, that that, that that message would take root in our hearts, that it would form us, that it would shape in us, that it would strengthen us, that we would desire to know who you are when it is calm so that we then can be sustained through the storms. I pray this in your name. Amen.